This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Vera Meat. Vera Meat creates divinely weird and whimsical jewelry for those with unusual taste. Her pop a culture talismans are playful and stylish, like her Talk to the Witch Hand palmistry ring, Vampire Luck Golden Fang Necklace, and Chunky Ouroboros Eternal Snake Wrist Cuff. She's also got apparel and accessories covered in moons, runes, and witchy babes. And Witchwave listeners can use code WITCHWAVE for 60% off orders on VeraMeat.com through January 2022. You heard that right. You can get 60% off. That is 60% off using offer code WITCHWAVE, all one word, at VeraMeat.com. That's V-E-R-A-M as in magic, E-A-T dot com. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to the Witch Wave. Yes, my friends, it is a Witch Wave bonus episode here just in time for Samhain, Halloween, and all of the other bewitching holy days that are being celebrated over this weekend and through early next week. I hope you're getting in the mood already and are filling your home with candles and candy. Now, ordinarily, I'd be releasing this as a Witch Wave Plus episode for Patreon backers, and that really is the best way to get bi-weekly Witch Wave bonus episodes and minisodes delivered right to you. However, right now, I am celebrating the publication of a dream project of mine. The Witchcraft Volume from Tashin's Library of Esoterica series. Now, you may already be familiar with the first two volumes that the series put out on tarot and astrology. And if you are, then you know that these books are visual feasts and magical beasts at over 500 pages each full color with hundreds of images and dozens of essays. And so when I was invited by series editor Jessica Hundley to co-edit and co-author their book on witchcraft, I was over the moon. So on today's episode, Jessica and I and the Library of Esoterica series designer Nick Taylor are celebrating this book and giving you a behind-the-scenes look or listen, as the case may be, into how this marvelous tome came together. Now, if you are a Patreon subscriber already, you may recognize Jessica's voice as she was on a prior Witch Wave Plus episode when the tarot book first came out. 
In addition to being the Library of Esoterica series editor, Jessica Hundley is a journalist, editor and author of numerous books on music, film, counterculture, and psychedelia. Her books include The New New Age, Crystals, an acclaimed biography on country rock icon Graham Parsons, and an extensive overview of the photography of Dennis Hopper, to name just a few. Jess's interviews and articles have appeared in such publications as Vogue, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times, and many, many others, and she is also a creative director and filmmaker, and honestly, you really should just give her a Google because listing all of the incredible projects that she's worked on over the years would probably take the full hour of this episode. Joining our conversation is Nick Taylor of Thunderwing Studios. Thunderwing is an award-winning Los Angeles-based creative studio founded in 2007 by Nick and his partner Jennifer Brandt Taylor. They specialize in visionary work with visionary people via a diverse portfolio of projects in publishing, music, film, fashion, food, interior design, and cultural institutions. You've probably seen the work of Nick's and the studios for such films as the recent adaptation of Emma, directed by Autumn DeWilde, and for gorgeous brands like Balak T and Rule of Three. As the designer for the Library of Esoterica series, Nick has overseen everything from the layout to the logo to the cover, and most importantly, he has that rare combination of exquisite aesthetic sense and a warm, open heart. It has been such a pleasure and a privilege to collaborate with these two brilliant minds on the Witchcraft book, and it was a joy to speak with Jess and Nick all about it. Jess and Nick joined me from Nick's studio in L.A. Jessica Hundley and Nick Taylor, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having us. I'm so happy to see you both. The listeners don't get the benefit of seeing your radiance right now, but mm -hmm. I'm so happy to see you both. And I'm thrilled to get to talk to you about our amazing new book, Witchcraft. So let's first just talk about the fact that this book is already out now in Europe and the UK. Is that right, Jess? Yes, it is in the hands of the European and United Kingdom, and I believe Ireland as well. So, yes. And it's on a boat on its way to us. <laughs> yes. And maybe, you know, just for our US listeners, just to manage expectations, you guys were not imagining anything. We were absolutely hoping that this would be in your hands at this point. But COVID has delayed a million things, including the book publishing industry. I'm sure everyone is familiar with the supply chain issues. So it will be here approximately when, Jess, hopefully? They're saying mid-November, which I think is sort of what we were thinking in the beginning. But I think it'll it'll be here hopefully by mid to late November if and then through some miracle maybe earlier through some spells that we cast, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's talk about this beautiful visual grimoire, as I've come to think of it. Jess, we'll start with you, but I want to hear from Nick shortly as well. You know, you have these first two volumes that you and Nick and other editors and writers both worked on. There was the tarot volume and the astrology volume that came out. This is all for Tashin's Library of Esoterica series, which you, Jess, are the series editor of. So what made you decide to focus on the order of topics? Why tarot first and then astrology and why witchcraft now? That is a great question. I think for us in pitching the series to Tashin, which we which we did, we had sort of in our own minds a little bit of an idea of order of the books. So right now, there are potentially going to be six, at least six books. Ooh. Um, and when we pitched, we actually um, were able to pitch just the first two at a time. 
But I think Nick helped me with the sort of overall pitch that we brought to Tashin. So he's he and I and Lisa, who is our amazing visual researcher, we kind of realized pretty quickly that tarot would be a great way to start because essentially we were defining the templates for the books, everything from how we would visually present them, knowing we wanted them to all sort of be part of an overall whole in true sort of encyclopedic format. Yeah, let me let me just interrupt and say yeah. that it reminds me a lot of these series that I adored when I was a kid, the Man, Myth, and Magic series and the Time Life Mysteries of the Unknown series. So yeah. the fact that you're creating this deluxe version of that is just like so thrilling to the teenager inside me, let alone the 40-year-old inside me. Yes, those books are definitely inspirations and we also are big fans and I'm slowly collecting vintage copies for both of those. But yeah, but with Tarot, we came to that first in part because it was something that I have had had experience in since I was a kid and was super interested in and had studied. It is a form, it is an esoteric tradition that's entirely symbolic and visual and so it would make sense as an art book that we would start with the tradition that was sort of most based in a visual practice Mm. and it also was very helpful to us design wise to kind of build a sort of sacred geometry of word count and design structure based on the major and minor arcana Um, It has a sort of built-in structure that was very helpful for us to start building out a template. It was interesting because that major and minor arcana template kind of has been present in all of the books so far. Mm. And then astrology seemed like the logical next (laughs) step. Um, But I have to say for us, it's great that we were able to do witchcraft Third, in part because we had built out a structure, a container to hold the ideas. Mm. But it's also so exciting because I don't think that a book like this really exists. Whereas, you know, there are other wonderful books on astrology and tarot uh, that are also visual. I don't think any of them are as wonderful as ours. (laughs) (laughs) But there's certainly other incredible books um, on those subjects, whereas the approach to witchcraft to approach it in a visual way and find the way in through art first, I think is really unique. And then of course, being able to work with you and have you kind of bring your knowledge and wisdom to the content was key. So thank you. And it was such a dream project and continues to be. So speaking of visuals, From the get-go, you've partnered with the wonderful Nick Taylor of Thunderwing Studios. And I actually don't know your origin story as collaborators. So, Nick, how did you get pulled into the Library of Esoterica projects? I mean, we've been collaborating on stuff for years. We've been living in L.A. full-time for five years now. Like, right when we moved, I feel like we started working on um, some Dennis Hopper stuff. Yeah. So Um, I've been in LA for 20 years, but we have Nick's wonderful wife is someone I've known for a long time before. She's actually born and raised LA Angelino and had moved to New York, but I had met her before she moved and before she met Nick. And we have, you know, a shared community of friends. So when they moved back, we kind of immediately connected. At the time, I had done a book with Tashin with Dennis Hopper mm. when he was still with us, um, the actor, artist, photographer. And I had become involved in, in helping the estate with various projects. Tashin had re-released the book I'd worked on three years ago, four years ago. And we also were restoring and re-releasing theatrically Dennis Hopper's movie that he directed and wrote and stars in that he had shot in Peru in 1970 after he had released Easy Rider. Mm, What was that film called? The Last Movie. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) 
And it was indeed the last movie. It won the uh, prize at Venice Film Festival in 1970. It won the top prize of Golden Lion and came back to the States and Universal took it out of theaters and shelved it in part because it was very experimental, but mostly because they were trying to get him back for being a pain in their ass. <laughs> um, Universal shelved the film. Dennis kind of retreated into himself. It was a pretty traumatic moment in his career and in his life. Mm. Um, and they took the rights away from him, which he got back not long before he passed away. Um, and one of the things that we were working on when he was still in this realm was getting a company to restore it and do a theatrical re-release and a soundtrack. It has an amazing soundtrack. Chris Christopherson is in the film and Michelle Phillips and it's just a beautiful soundtrack. And so I was helping kind of make that happen and trying to do my best to connect the estate with various supporters of the film and Nick came on board to design once we had the restoration in place and we did an amazing, it's in theaters, it's on Blu-ray. Nick designed the poster for the film and then the, the, LP. Um, the LP, which just, <clears throat> which came out on um, Earth Records and Nick designed the beautiful vinyl and the insert. And so we had been working on that and we've been thinking about trying to do a last movie book. And in the process, I was talking with our um, wonderful in-house editor at Tashin, Nina Weiner, and we started talking about putting together the idea for Library of Esoterica. And so immediately I thought about Nick and um, Tashin has many amazing in-house designers. It's a little bit rare for them to work with an outside designer. Mm. Now Nick is um, being thrown a lot of projects, and not just the library of Esoterica. So yep. that's so like. awesome. These books look exquisite. And certainly you have the luxury of having access to all of these different visuals. But we still need people, editors, of course, but also you, Nick, to help us organize it visually. So can you talk a little bit about the design of these books, Nick? Because they are so exquisite. Thank you. You know, thinking about the interior is really about setting up a really sort of like cohesive and mathematically satisfying relationship between elements, the nuance of which is incredibly boring to most people. <laughs> but when we were talking earlier about the order that the books have been released in, you know, if you look at tarot, there's a very sort of set structure to, you know, the major and minor arcana. And so building it from that, it was kind of a natural thing. And with astrology, same thing. You've got the 12 zodiac signs and sort of the way that the planets are arranged. We built it in accordance with that. With witchcraft, as you know, it was more about, you know, connecting with sacred geometry and numerological ideas that are present in our relationship to nature and to, to the earth. So where there were certain governing principles that manifested in relation to the tarot. And of course, everything related to esoteric knowledge, you, the deeper you go, the more you learn. And many of these things relate back to the tree of life mm. and the math that exists there. You can spend a lifetime learning about that. And I'm just starting to like dip my, my toes in, in the water there. You know, a lot of the sort of cosmic relationships and the relationships of the spheres and the numerology related to the number 10 all influenced the way that we built the book. And then from the outside, the idea is about looking at historic bookbinding techniques. So the sort of quarter bound spine. What, what does that mean, Nick, quarter bound? That's, that's where the, um, the spine, it wraps around to roughly a quarter of the front and back of the book. Mm. And then it reveals a dominant image on the back and front covers. Mm. And that can also be done with, you know, it used to be marbled paper or textured paper and often a label that was letter pressed would be tipped on the cover. 
But so there's a sort of a nod to antique bookbinding because one of our first trips was researching at the Morgan Pierpont Library in New York. Ah, the best. And as you know, that place is just, you know, a, ah. a devastation to the modern. <laughs> um, but walking around in the preserved library, you know, looking at the spines of the books and the ways that the books were traditionally made. And, you know, a lot of the time in the old days, book sheets were printed. And before they were folded and bound, the person who was commissioning the work would come and say, I want these chapters bound together, but in my style, in my house style, which would be, let's say it's like purple leather with gold foil stamping on the spines in mm. a particular typeface with, a, with my house logo on it or whatever. And then they would be bound up by the, the printer and bookbinder to match your sort of your home, if you're, you know, wealthy enough to commission those things. So that all of that was an inspiration for how they're created. So we're really trying to sort of lean into the light rather than we we all know that esoteric, you know, means obscure. It relates to that word, but bringing this stuff out into the light and using gestures that are a little bit more approachable, friendly, for lack of a better term, um, is part of our thinking. So yeah. And that so comes across because, you know, for somebody like myself who, I'll be honest, I can be a little bit snotty when it comes to the occult because there are a lot of people who like to use the symbology in like a fashion sense without going deeper and whether or not they're doing it on purpose or they just don't know better. It's very easy for people to, you know, use symbols without knowing what the symbols even mean. And on the other hand... I do think that the more we open these doors up and welcome people in and make it a real celebration as well as an education, then the more people can be affected by this beautiful work instead of us gatekeeping, right? So I really think that you both and Lisa and all your contributors have thread that needle where these books are approachable and yet they are dense. I mean, these are over 500 pages, hundreds of images brilliant scholars and artists and practitioners contributing. It really strikes that balance of like the high and the low at the same time. Well, and I think that is very intentional on, on our part. I think our main sort of goal with this series as a whole was to kind of offer an introduction that felt educated and but also entertaining that didn't get mired in dogma or judgment or preachiness and kind of more to what you were saying more is a celebration and a welcoming and an invitation to people to bring them in both visually and in the writing and the way that we approach the subject I mean, there's each book starts with a very extensive historical overview but we try to approach that in a journalistic way rather than a sort of dry scholarly way and just getting back to the design for a second I can let Nick speak a little bit more on it but one of the first things that Nick created was our library of esoterica logo yes a key you know the key to all esoteric knowledge is is this sort of universal beautiful symbol which we had seen in these wonderful old books at another incredible research partner the Philosophical Research Society here in Los Angeles, which also has an incredible library. We had sort of seen these images of the key, you know, and so Nick brilliantly created our logo, which is T-L-O-E in the shape of a key. And mm -hmm. that's also our end papers for every issue, which is the inside papers that form the inside cover of the book. And then it's also stamped on to each of the spines is our logo, the Library of Esoterica spelled out, and then the name of the book. And it's a, in a sort of very deep red against a sort of ivory spine. And that was very intentionally, you know, sort of blood and flesh inspired. Ooh, I didn't know that part. We're getting super gothy. I love that. <laughs> so. 
these books are just such a great pleasure to flip through. I know I'm biased now, but but I was a fan before I got to contribute. I would love to get a sense of how you approach the visuals because when you have a topic such as witchcraft or astrology, I mean, I imagine it could feel endless the amount of images that you could put into the book. So how do you both approach the research for the visual aspects of these tomes? You know, it starts very broadly. I mean, we have one of the first things that Jessica does is, you know, writing the table of contents. By writing the table of contents, we really start to get lenses or filters to these massive bodies of visual information. And that is our sort of first way of distilling and sort of curating out of just like a vast sea of things. Because again, if, you know, if you just go, oh, I love this, I love this, I love this, I love this. I mean, there's so much to love, but yeah. what tells the story, you know? That's just, I mean, my brain is such a kitchen sink brain that like I so appreciated having some direction because I could have, you know, as part of the process for helping with the witch images, I really don't think I could have stopped myself. And then I think something that emerged out of tarot that we really came to love and now are really embracing for the with these books in an ongoing way is that by setting it up with say you know the chapter on the high priestess you've got artwork from the 16th century and you've got artwork from last year and because the the sort of main filter is the high priestess you have the ability to put those two things together they share a medium or they share a color story or they share symbolic representations, which of course are the timeless aspect of tarot that's so rich. And so getting to compare things that really don't sort of coexist in any other environment is a wonderful way to experience these timeless traditions that are deeply psychological and spiritual. And the same is true of, you know, going into witchcraft is being able to work with contemporary artists that, you know, you guys know, and we're, you know, in this community, and getting to look at that side by side with something, a painting that's from, you know, the 14th century. That's very satisfying to start to create that sense of, you know, time is a construct, and we've always been, you know, human. Seekers. Yeah, interacting and expressing ourselves. You know, these are very timeless ideas. Absolutely. Other than the history sections and the pop culture, those are the only two sections which usually are the front and back of these books. That's the only time when the imagery is in some chronological yeah. order. And then the rest of the time, it's really about the symbology and, and the iconography and not about any kind of chronological constructs that we have to put on it. So it really sets us free to you know, find work that we feel is the sort of best example of that concept that we're trying, that we're exploring on that. Absolutely. And I think it's so moving, Nick, to your point, to see an older artist juxtaposed against a newer artist to really show how universal these questions are. I'm sure it is such a thrill for a newer artist. I can only imagine what, you know, a Jesse Bransford or, you know, Yin Shadows, what they might think being juxtaposed against Goya, right? Or Durer. I mean, what what an amazing thing. And yet they're all part of the same spiritual and aesthetic lineage, to your point. Yeah. So let's talk about the witchcraft book. I was so honored to get to contribute to this project and I totally saw right off the bat how this book was its own specific challenge, because as you already brought up, you know, with tarot, you have the cards that you're following in a distinct order. With astrology, you have the 12 zodiac signs and, and houses. With witchcraft, it's a little bit like, how the hell do you organize this? And also, how do you both acknowledge the history that we have of images of witches that might be... I mean, I think they're exciting and cool, but like kind of negative and insulting all these old fashioned ideas about what witches were or beliefs about witches or even the fantastical fictional 
kind of images of witches? And how do you reconcile that with people now who identify as witches voluntarily? We, you know, also want to represent the practice of witchcraft in a respectful way. And there's all kinds of challenges about that, which we'll get into. But it really was its own distinct challenge. And I mean, I suppose we'll leave it up to the readers to see if we met that challenge. But I agree with you, Jess, when you say nothing like this has ever existed before, where visually we're, you know, trying to tell the story of the witch as a fact and a fiction in the same book. So I'm trying to even remember our process of how we landed on the symbology, because I think first we were like, well, maybe we'll organize this by the phases of the moon. And and you could see how that might have worked. And then that kind of went away. And then it was like, maybe by the wheel of the year. And and P.S., we we definitely represent all of that in the book. But I think together we sort of landed on the five elements and the pentagram as the organizing principle. So you have air, fire, water, earth, and spirit. And for me, at least, that really like unlocked, okay, here's how we can then organize all of the other symbology and all the other, you know, kind of mythic imagery. Am I remembering that correctly? (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. I mean, as I've said before, it's putting together, you know, the first sort of order of business, as Nick was saying earlier, is figuring out the map the table of contents really becomes the map that the book is built on. Laying out the bones of the book, then we add the flesh of images and writing to, And that's always sort of the hardest part, but also it's like this in, really interesting puzzle that needs to be figured out. And once it, it works, it's a visceral kind of like, oh yeah, this will work. Like we were saying, we had the advantage even though we still had to kind of play with the structure slightly, we did have the advantage with tarot and astrology of having a sort of, you know, a numerology element, a set framework that we could then expand on. And with witchcraft, and right now we're working on plan magic, which is the fourth volume. Mm. It really was a challenge to kind of figure out how to build the container, you know. The cauldron. Cauldron, exactly. And, and I remember when when you guys brought up the idea of the pentagram and the five elements as a governing principle. I've been studying numerology and sacred geometry for so many years and you know taught at the School of Visual Arts and tried to influence the you know the the younger generation to pay attention to that stuff because it's arguable, but it's like all you need, you know, you if, you, if you're paying attention to that the world just unfolds out of it. You know, everything unfolds out of it. You know, just like talking about the tree of life, it's one thing to look at it and sort of perceive it aesthetically, but the more you know, those elements are keys to understanding it. And it's a symbol for life and interaction and our relation to to the everything. (laughs) But so with this book, you know, there are five parts. And then within, this is sort of magazine terminology, but when we look at the these Library of Esoterica books, there's like the departments sections, which are like up front. And then I've always loved the term, the well. That's where the feature articles are occur. And so sort of the well of tarot is the major and the minor arcana. The well of astrology is like sort of going deep into the, the signs and symbols. And then with witchcraft, our sort of the well is another five-part subdivided section into the elements. And then within each of those five elements, we've subdivided into five symbolic manifestations of that element. So, you know, when you look at the star as a shape, the pentagram, it is a self-replicating geometric form that you can have five stars make up a larger star and it can subdivide infinitely or, you know, it's what they call a recursive You know, Mm. we built a recursive editorial experience in this book. And it's It's, it's very, it's very satisfying. It's so holographic. You know what I mean? It's like multidimensional. And I mean, I'm such a nerd for design and art. So I could listen to you geek out about this all day. But one of the things that I had the most fun working on or helping work on 
Nick, was your diagram that you designed that kind of illustrates this very principle. It's this pentagram that branches off almost like fractally into other pentagrams that, I mean, you guys just will have to see it. But Nick, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about some of those original designs that you were able to bring to the book through your own work and also other artists that you commissioned. So yes, us collaborating on bringing sort of a visual representation of this book structure into something that feels a little bit like an information graphic in some ways. It's sort of, of course, a book is a codex, so it's, you know, in a linear format, but the geometric shape we created represents that. In, it's nonlinear, you know, of course, because it sort of, you can start anywhere and end anywhere. It's like um, a map. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a map. It's a fun way to visualize the parts of the subjects and how they interrelate. The next really inspiring and, and fun of this part of the story was when it came to the frontispiece of the book. And with tarot and astrology, we found these really beautiful antique illustrations that really spoke in a broad sense, symbolically, about the subject matter. But then when it came to this one, and I'm a dilettante and I have a lot of thoughts about witchcraft that I've like learned and that I'm processing as the father of a daughter and also being married to a witch. <laughs> but I started sharing with, with both of you, like, oh, look at this really cool part of a grimoire or like, you know, this, this cool illustration that was in this historic book of shadows. And it's like, I'm, I'm sort of making a joke, but you know, they're like written in Aramaic and it's like, you know, in some obscure format and you were both like, yeah, but we don't know what this is. You can't just like <laughs> use a spell. Like this is a spell. Yeah. And you just, like plop it into the book like it's decoration. Listen, I mean, I'm not I'm not like a tacky person who would just <laughs> do that. But it's not to say that that's when it became serious. But it's like when you recognize that, yes, you're representing art, but like this is all very purposeful. And so just like grabbing something and putting it there was not appropriate. And so I remember there being a moment where I was like, you said, you don't know what, what's in this spell. And I was like, well, what if we did know what was in the spell, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll, I'll just jump in. This happens a lot. And this is to our earlier point about some people who just like think the images are really cool and they might get a tattoo of it or wear a shirt of it. And I'm like, that's fine. I'm like, you should probably know that that's to conjure a demon. So <laughs> maybe you don't want it on your arm. Maybe you do, but you should probably know. And so, yeah, when we were talking about this image for the front of the book, it was like, let's be really intentional and have a real visual spell. And so, and so in asking that question, you know, so how do we make a positive spell for this book so that the first thing you see visually when you open it is ushering in the right ideas and the right message and really conveying all of what we want this book to do and to say. And so you introduced us to Laura Tempest Zakroff who we were able to work with to create the frontispiece for witchcraft, which is like, you know, I've, I've worked as an art director for a lot of years and Jess knows she's worked as a creative director and art director and editor and guided people through, you know, art creation numerous, numerous times. But, you know, you introducing us to Laura and then working with her, it's like, of course, being an expert in symbolism and sigils and sigil creation, it's like she got it immediately. Yeah. And it's like she took everything that we've been working on and manifested into, into this beautiful expression that like I could stare at. I mean, talk about it's like, so yeah. so, I mean, talk about like a stoner's delight. I mean, just <laughs> like, you know, like opening up the vinyl record when you're a kid, like that just, it is just one of those moments where you're like, I could just meditate on this for the next hour. You know? Yes, yes, yes. And for listeners, Laura is also the author of many books, including a book called Sigil Witchery. She's an artist and, and a real expert in sigil making. So everyone go check her out. And what a blessing for us to have her blessing on our book, in our book. So Jess, let's talk about the writing. I know that you have a background in journalism. And so... 
not only is your own writing just supreme, you're such an amazing writer, but I know that you have really high standards for the writers who contributed to the book and the people that you interviewed for the book. So what is your thinking in terms of who you invited and who you then, you know, encouraged me and other co-editors to invite into this series? What was kind of your standard for whose words you wanted in here? Well, I mean, I think we were incredibly fortunate. Most of Tarot I wrote, there are some contributing essays. And then the same with astrology. Most of it was written by Andrea Richards, who's a fellow journalist who's written books as well. I really wanted to approach these subjects, like I said, journalistically. A practitioner who is also a writer can get very bogged down in their viewpoint, which within esoteric practices, the individual viewpoint is incredibly important, but also there's so many ways of seeing that I didn't want to have, for instance, someone who'd written a bunch of astrology books talking about their approach to astrology, write our astrology book. I wanted Mm -hmm. this tradition of cultural journalism with journalists who have experience in writing not critique, but cultural journalism for bigger magazines. Andrea and I both work for the New York Times and Vogue and writing in a way where you're conveying an experience to people as a conduit rather than someone coming from a place of judgment. And you sort of allow for yourself to be the conduit of information in a way that's very clear and concise, but also entertaining Mm -hmm. um, and intriguing and interesting and poetic. (laughs) So with witchcraft, you know, I think I kind of had that in mind. I wanted this time to have a coven of writers who were representing different approaches and different viewpoints, but who also you know, were published writers and who had the chops. Yeah, who had the chops, but also had their (laughs) own voices and understood, I think probably almost everyone in the book has published books themselves, you included, of course. And, you know, that's kind of why I think you and I chose the people we did is because they all are experienced, not only within their practices and almost all are practicing, you know, which is, but they also had understood how to convey those ideas in a way that felt poetic and entertaining and non-judgmental and joyful, you know. Absolutely. And I'll give a few shout outs because a lot of the contributors that I brought in because I'm very biased, I brought in lots of folks who people have heard here on the Witch Wave, folks like Judica Illis and Maya Spalter and Kristen Soleil, Sarah Faith Goddess Diener, Julia Diaz, you know, um, my friend Susan Aberth. I, I just drool over her essay that she wrote about surrealism and witchcraft, which is so gorgeous near the end of the book. So th- that was so much fun for me to get to work more closely with people who are heroes of mine. Jess, I'd also love for you to talk about some of the interviews that you conducted because, you know, it really is a challenge to try to put out a book that represents the witch and witchcraft, especially when that term is so fluid and when there are, let's be honest, all kinds of pitfalls that we see people fall into all the time in terms of not being diverse enough or being culturally appropriative. It might be accidental or not, you know. So can you talk a little bit about how you chose to center other voices as well in this book? Yes. And I also should give a shout out to, as far as contributors go, you know, Amanda Yates Garcia, who who I had just finished reading her book and initiated, which is just an incredible book. And I just love her writing. And then we had two young writers who had written an article for Mashable, the website, about sort of cultural appropriation in witchcraft and the sort of global witchcraft and what that means. And and we were lucky enough to get permission from their editors to reprint an edited version of their essay in the books. We have so many great 
you know, sort of a, a very diverse array of contributors. And we kind of wanted to continue that with our interviews as well. So each of the books, starting with astrology, we have poll quotes, sort of full page poll quotes. So these sort of featured voices throughout the book. In tarot, we have the same, but most of those are not from interviews, but from older books. For astrology, we decided to start interviewing astrologers, uh, contemporary practicing astrologers, and instead sort of have those full quotes be contemporary voices. And it really kind of set us free in terms of letting us be super inclusive in a way that we are able to kind of feature. I think in witchcraft, we have 20 different people that we interviewed for those poll quotes, and they really are representing the vast array of practices. Some are not practicing witches. You know, Ronald Hutton, for example, is a scholar. He doesn't identify as a witch, but he's written incredible books about Mm. witchcraft. Mm -hmm. One of the other ways that we are able to kind of be more inclusive is, is that this book is about Northern European witchcraft in terms of that's sort of the focus of the book. And we wanted to be sensitive to the difference between folk religion and religion and witchcraft. You know, when we are speaking to a hoodoo priestess, it was a hoodoo priestess who identifies also as a witch. Mm-hmm. Um, and we allowed them to speak to those different diverse array of practices. We allowed the witches to speak for themselves more right. rather than speaking for them or trying to lump everyone into one definition. You know, I know you and I both were very considered in who we invited in to speak and trying to be as as broad in, in our approach as we could and as inclusive as we could. Absolutely. And just show that the coven is large, you know, but that it is about who self identifies as opposed to, you know, there is this long tradition of the oppressor calling that witchcraft because it is not what they practice. And and so we wanted to be sure that that was not happening in this book at all. But it's always a challenge. Of course, I have my own blindnesses and biases here, but I personally I'm really happy with all of the different voices and images that are in the book because I don't see that very often when it comes to witchcraft. And so I hope other people feel seen and feel represented in this book as well. To that point, too, you know, with the art selection on all of these books, it's hard to know because you're not, you know, looking at a picture of the artist, but the artists that we include in these books are selected from, you know, they're global. First of all, we have art from all over the world, artists from all over the world, a really diverse array of contributing artists to the books as well. You know, there's definitely, the the books are very diverse in terms of contributions, not only from the writers and the interviews, but also the artists themselves. Absolutely. So in our last few minutes together, I'd love to talk about some of the images. And I guess it's such a basic question, but I just want to ask you both, what are some of your favorite images in the book? Either things that you were surprised by or were so delighted to discover or just stuff that really rocks your world? I mean, I can picture them, but then I, you know, you just this, <laughs> I'm putting this you on the spot. Art. I remember this um, joke, uh, a designer had another designer do an auditory narration of their portfolio. Um, <laughs> it was incredibly boring on purpose. Um, but yeah, like, like, it's this piece of art where a, a woman is floating on a Oh bridge. my goodness. Well, while you're looking yours up, Nick, Nick is literally paging through our <laughs> giant, beautiful book. Uh, maybe I'll mention a couple of mine. So one is by this collagist named Helen Adam, who's also a poet. She hung out with the Beats like Allen Ginsberg and, and that whole, whole crew, though she was much older than they were back in, in San Francisco and later when she moved to New York. And she did these crazy beautiful collages that have only just now really gotten a little bit more known. And so we have this wonderful collage that she did, and it has the words 
for she has power typed underneath. And it's this woman. She kind of looks like a glamorous kind of pinup or old Vogue model or something. And she has this snake curled around her. And I just, I love Helen Adams so much. So to finally help her get some more recognition, she's passed now, but it really feels like just something that I'm really honored to get to be able to do. I am always really excited to be able to feature contemporary artists within the context of this sort of very lush Tasha and high quality book. But I also, it's so wonderful to be able to celebrate maybe, like you said, these kind of unsung heroes and heroines and art that I've loved for a long time. I mean, I have to say every image in the book I'm in love with. Yes, I know. (laughs) Um, I know. There's an artist, Betty Sarah, who is in her 90s now. She's she's an L.A.-based artist. And actually, we've had one of her pieces in every edition, every volume. I love all of her work. Margaret Cameron, Marjorie Cameron, always been fascinating to me. She's an artist from Los Angeles who is an incredibly mysterious, powerful figure. She was sort of key to the Ferris gallery scene in the 1960s here and has gotten some acclaim posthumously. How do you mm-hmm. say that? Posthumously. posthumously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She was amused to directors and artists here. She actually did a movie with Dennis Hopper called Night Tide in the 60s by a great director who did a short film with her, which we include in the book. She does these incredible kind of very witchy, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, Warmer Star. Curtis Harrington is the name of the director that worked with her. But then also, I mean, there's some interesting stories about her and Jack Parsons. And their their sex magic. She was married to Jack Parsons and who started JPL. One of the things I love, I've been in LA for 20 years, is the deep sort of esoteric labyrinth that goes back the last hundred years here of this sort of West Coast individualist, spiritualist communities that have existed here Mm -hmm. and the exploration that happens here. Oh, so yeah. much a part of that through the 40s onward. She was a spy in World War II. She's just an incredible figure. Yeah, I have to say it was such a thrill for me personally also to get to work on a book that features the work of my favorite, Remedios Varo, mm-hmm. and of course, Leonora Carrington and Leonor Feeney and all these amazing surrealists and to have them contextualized as these magical, brilliant women. So I'm still pinching myself that we were able to license like Remedios Varro's painting, which going to the Sabbath, which is one of my favorites. Nick, did you have any other ones you want to add to the stew, the brew in our final moments? I'm in the same boat as Jessica. I just, (laughs) you just, I mean, there's like a hundred more, you know, that didn't (laughs) make it into the book that we love as well. But seeing um, like Nikki de Saint-Fal and um, Judy Chicago in this these ideas have presented themselves in the sort of modern art, and I'm using air quotes, like stage is really satisfying. I mean, I think that a book like this being published by a publisher like Tashin and, you know, sort of just coming back to the bigger idea of these ideas entering the mainstream, mainstream bloodstream. But as I say, being married to a witch and being a guide to a six-year-old girl that is like coming up in this world. Working on this book has been so, um, and working with you two, has been so awe-inspiring and broadening and mind-opening. There's a great book that I I don't, unfortunately, have have so much time for sitting and reading quietly, but Audible is like my best friend. Um, Mm -hmm. But this, the book, um, The Immortality Key, which was written by Brian Murarescu, and like looking back at the idea of the, the pagan continuity hypothesis and sort of the, the ideas that, you know, a lot of Christianity from the past roughly 2000 years has sort of worked to demonize, marginalize, oppress and subdue the inherent power of women, the aesthetic of a witch, even being an aesthetic in the sort of like Western world is tricky by definition. 
you know? And like when I see, mm-hmm. I always think of this uh, vision of like that valedictorian in Texas who like wrote her um, speech, you know, for the graduation and then like got it approved. And then when she got up there, they couldn't turn her mic off and she just spoke truth. That was a witch moment. That was a sort of a moment of like, <laughs> like there's no asking for permission. It's like, this is a moment of power that is not being asked for or granted. It's just being demonstrated. It's being stepped into. Mm. And that, you know, I think I think that seeing that stuff, and that's why, you know, when you go back to some of the subjects that Brian Marascu touches on in this book, you know, the secret wisdom that women passed from generation to generation. Like the only way to kill that wisdom was to, you know, take the grandmother, the mother and the daughter out at the same time. Mm, mm. I just find that it's a very um, important moment for men to read this book. You know, it's men to connect with what this is about. You know, I have the great fortune of working with so many talented and powerful women. Um, So, you know, it's just, it's a very, it's an important education. Ah, beautifully said. Jess, in our final moments together, do you have any final words of intention for this book or for this series that you'd like to share? Well, I just, first of all, I'm so grateful to be a part of it and to be helping to shepherd these ideas and to be working alongside you two and all the other amazing people that are contributing to these books. Um, both past and present from, you know, all the amazing voices that are in here who are speaking to us from the other plane with their art. But I keep going back to the original intent, which was I want to unlock the door to the wealth of beauty and knowledge and wisdom that exists within these practices. And I hope that people can easily access these ideas and then go deeper on their own. And, you know, we have resources and our sort of mission statement at the back of the book that's always about going and exploring further and deeper and using these tools to come into your own power and to be expanding your own personal growth and your own power in the world, you know. Gorgeous, gorgeous mic drop, the end. Well, listen, I am so grateful to both of you. I'm in awe of both of you. I'm a fangirl of both of yours, fangirl of Lisa's, and I am just feeling like the luckiest witch alive that I got to collaborate with you all and with all our amazing contributors and artists living and past. So thank you so much for collaborating with me. Jess, thank you for inviting me into this magic circle. I feel just so lucky. Thank you for everything. Yeah, thank you. It's such a pleasure, such an honor. (laughs) Thank you both for being on the Witch Wave and hooray for our book. Everybody go get it. (laughs) That's it for the show. Thank you again to Jessica Hundley and Nick Taylor for taking more time to nerd out with me about beauty and bewitchment. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at witchwavepod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. 
And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.